Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, and you're listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast that talks about how humans shape technology and how technology is shaping our society. My guest today is Evelyn Joke. She is an assistant professor at Stanford Law School and one of the world's leading experts on content regulation. Evelyn also happens to be an Australian and we're absolutely delighted to have her here with us today. G'day. Thanks very much for having me. Oh, I love the g'day. Well done. Now, before you absconded across to the US, you were an associate clerk to Justice Kiefel here at the High Court in Australia. Then Justice Kiefel, now Chief Justice Kiefel, a first female Chief Justice, which is really very exciting. How did you go from being an Australian lawyer to ending up at Stanford Law School? I'm sure there are lots of people who'd like to mirror that career path. Yeah, I mean, I wish it was sort of a more uh, inspiring or intentional story that, that provided good advice or a good roadmap, but it was sort of uh, all a <laughs> bit of a, a very lucky, happy accident, uh, honestly. Um, yeah, I did my law degree uh, in Australia at UNSW, and I sort of did all of the things that, that you do. I went and uh, you know, did my associateship and then worked for um, worked for a corporate law firm for a couple of years. And I loved it so much um, that I had to run away to the completely opposite end of the earth and put as much distance <laughs> between me and that job uh, as, as humanly possible. I did the same thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> that actually is a classic story. So um, yeah, I went and did my master's overseas at Harvard Law School. And I, you know, I had this idea that sort of nine months or a year at Harvard would really sort of make it clear what I wanted to do with my life, which didn't happen at all. I sort of was getting towards the end of the year and starting to panic about not knowing what to do. And so a friend sort of said, well, why don't you just enroll in a doctorate? That, you know, it kicks the ball further down the road, uh, which is <laughs> For anyone listening, the worst possible reason to do a doctorate. Like, I really think you got to have a, a really good reason, a lot of drive, a lot of passion uh, normally to do a doctorate, but that was not my reason. Um, and it turns out that if you want to do a doctorate, um, you, you need a topic. Uh, they, they, it turns out uh, you they require you to have some idea about what you're going to research. Uh, and this was right around um, 2016, 2017, when, uh, mm. you know, the fake news crisis was exploding. Um, everyone thought the biggest threat to, to democracy was Macedonian teenagers writing articles about how the Pope endorsed Donald Trump or whatever it happened to be that was uh, that was on, on social media. It feels like such a quaint problem these days. But I thought this was a really interesting issue, a really interesting problem and, uh, and had international ramifications. So that's what I was decided to do my doctorate on. And I just fell in love with the topic. I just found it so fascinating. And of course, the field has really exploded. This is something that, you know, is now um, uh, there's, there's so much activity happening in. And so, yeah, one thing led to another. And uh, I went on the, the job market a couple of years ago and that's how I ended up at Stanford. I love stories like this. Uh, so many people come to me and um, ask for career advice. And, and so many people, we, we ask this question of many of our guests and so few people actually had a clear plan and right. clear directory. It's like, do the things that you're interested in, do the things that you love and, and that will lead you to you know, hopefully at least an interesting life and a good career. Um, so content regulation is your is your thing. I want to drill down a little bit in terms of what content regulation actually is. Yeah. Um, so, so I studied content moderation, which we 
you know, is typically what we talk about where platforms have these rule sets, um, how they write the rules for what you can say and do uh, online on their services, um, and then how they enforce those rules. So, you know, the, the, the Twitter rules or the Facebook community standards or, you know, these days the, the threads guidelines or whatever it happens to be because everything that happens uh, in the world these days has an online component. There is no social or political issue that doesn't manifest mm. uh, on these platforms in some capacity. Um, every problem is a content moderation problem. Um, there is no sort of thing that happens in the world that isn't also something that these platforms have to think about and have to deal with. So they have to have rules for for, for deciding, um, are we okay with this kind of stuff on our on our services and, and what do we want to do with it? Um, so that's, you know, that's where that idea of everything is content moderation comes from. Back even, you know, a couple of years ago, there wasn't a lot of regulation um, in this space. A lot of it was these private regulators, these private companies who were deciding all of these rules and, and making all of these standards and enforcing them um, as they liked. Uh, and then since then, basically, I barely know a regulator in the world these days that isn't writing or, or passing some sort of law uh, to try and rein in these platforms or exert more control over what's happening uh, online. And so, it's, so that's that the interaction between those two kinds of regulation that 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 private regulation that the companies are doing uh, and the public regulation that the governments are doing how those how those work together and and how, what that means for our online life is is what I'm interested in and one of the things that you've written quite a lot about is um your frustration with a lot of the conversation around content moderation focusing on individual specific issues so taking down a particular piece of content in relation to a particular controversy as opposed to what you argue taking a systems-based approach to content moderation. When you talk about systems-based approach in content regulation, what do you mean by that? You know, I think it's really natural for us when we think about speech regulation in general uh, to think about this like you have a rule, someone says something, you look at the rule, you look at what they said and you see if there's some sort of breach of the rule or what the punishment should be or whatever it is. That's how we've thought about sort of speech controversies, time immemorial and that really individualistic kind of approach um, and a very sort of rights based, uh, like especially, you know, where, where I'm you know, where I'm sitting right now, like First Amendment kind of uh, individual speech rights approach to thinking about this. And the thing is that that's just like such a poor match for how these systems operate at the scale that they operate mm. online. So in the course of listening to this podcast interview, um, you know, the time that it takes a listener to listen to this interview, Facebook is going to take down something like over a million pieces of content or it's, you know, something in that mm. kind of range. And when you're operating at that kind of scale, when you're reviewing that many pieces of content, you can't really think of it in the same way as you can with like individual like court cases that can take sometimes months and months and months for the judge to sort of carefully evaluate the evidence. This is operating at a speed and at a scale that is like truly unfathomable. It's really just hard to get your mind around it. And it's at a scale mm. where mistakes are inevitable, right? Like you're just not going to have every single decision be right in that kind of context and when you're operating like that. And so what's much more important is thinking about the systems that are in place in order to sort of review that content and the affordances that you give users in order to create content, how you can sort of provide users with uh, tools in order to sort of moderate their own experience online. And then, you know, what kind of errors do you want to err on the side of, of making? Do you want to sort of err on the side of more false positives or false negatives? Because again, when you're operating at that scale, you, you are going to make mistakes. And so I think adopting that sort of systems-based approach, uh, thinking of it much more 
broadly and holistically rather than thinking like the answer is always going to be the same answers that we've had in a judicial-based paradigm. And uh, yeah, that just doesn't work in, in, in this sort of entirely different paradigm. If I could give you a magic wand and say, you now have the power to implement system-wide reform, what would be the elements that, w- that you would want to see getting down into the nitty gritty? The thing about that is that it's kind of impossible to say sitting from where I'm sitting. And so if I, you know, had a magic wand, what I'd want is more transparency, more information about what's actually going yeah. on. And that's one of like the remarkable things about the current situation in which we we sit is that we have these like extremely powerful platforms uh, doing all of this regulation, making all of these decisions about our online experience. Uh, and we know mm. like surprisingly little about how they're doing it and exactly what they're seeing and what their systems are and, and all of those sorts of things. And I don't think, you know, I don't think we can solve problems that you don't understand. And so I think part of the problem is like regulators are rushing in and trying to fix things without having a lot of information about exactly what's going on. Um, and so I think, you know, step one is we have to get more information about how, uh, like what exactly are the problems that, mm. that we are trying to solve and what are the most effective solutions to, to solving those? Yeah, transparency. Okay, good. Um, spotlight is, is always very useful. You can't have a conversation um, about content moderation content regulation without talking about Section 230. We've mentioned Section 230 on this podcast before, but we haven't really done a deep dive in what Section 230 actually is. And since uh, we have a professor from Stanford Law School here, it seems like the perfect opportunity for a mini deep dive on, on Section 230. And why one section of a US piece of legislation is so influential globally. It's it's funny. It's this like bizarre situation where you have this like t- this single provision of the US code um, that has so- it's like share now. You don't even need to say like what mm. what legislation is from. You just say Section two thirty and people know. It's like you don't need to spell out Section two thirty of the Communications Decency Act. Like people, it's a uh, you know I, I I go to parties sometimes and someone will ask me like what are you doing and these are people in like completely different fields, engineers or whatever, and I'll sort of explain. And they're like, oh, is that Section 230 kind of stuff? And I'm like, yeah, actually, that, that kind of is. So so well done. So um, I don't know if, it, if, if Australian uh, listeners and Australian engineers or uh, have the same name recognition with Section 230, but um, as Jeff Kossoff famously called it in, in a book that he's written, it's the 26 words that created the internet. Mm. Uh, and the idea being that uh, it provides an immunity for platforms from liability for the content that other people post on their services. Um, if I go and defame you on Twitter, uh, you can sue me for defamation, but you can't sue Twitter. Uh, and the idea being that because uh, Twitter, you know, operates at such a such a scale, if you expose it to potential liability for everything that's on its uh, services, it's going to err on the side of caution and take down anything that that may or may not be a source of liability and the cost of free speech will be too high. So you could then go to Twitter and say, hey, Evelyn's tweet's defamatory and Twitter's going to go, well, I don't care if it is or isn't. I don't want to be exposed to potential liability. I'm just going to take it down. And mm. it could have been a really you know, uh, important tweet. You can imagine it sort of tweets about politicians or or things like that, um, that, that might be important that we would want, uh, you know, services to protect. And it was this sort of provision that in many ways allowed the fledgling internet to, to flourish and to create the platforms that we see today um, because, you know, it, it meant that uh, they they couldn't be sued for for the things that were on their services and allowed, you know, content to, to flourish. And so, it's, so it has been an, an extremely important provision. Now, of course, the argument is the reason why it comes up so much these days is, well, 
that's fine, but it's gone too far. Um, and it has allowed them to act with all power, no responsibility. Um, that they, uh, that they, you know, have this immunity. And instead of encouraging them to, to clean up their services, it's provided them sort of a, an, an escape and, and, and allowed them to, to not do that and not internalize the costs of their, of their services. Mm. So this all happened in 1996. So basically three years into the internet being in existence. So it's, it's quite, Quite a long time ago, but on the other hand, it's not that long ago, um, was when the Communication Decency Act was first proposed, there was um, a whole raft of other provisions that increased penalties and liability for um, indecent communications that sort of came out of this panic about pornography on the internet, et cetera. The, the Communications Decency Act was was passed. It was then challenged and basically everything was struck out except for Section 230. And so the idea that Section 230 was meant to be a shield against liability, at the time it was drafted, it was drafted whilst also raising the level of liability for personal posts, etc. This is a controversial question. Basically, since those court cases, there's been conversations about do we need to reform? How we, you know, what? How do you actually address this imbalance? And in particular, there were two cases um, that were at the Supreme Court this year in the US. Um, one against uh, Google, one against Twitter. There was a lot of chatter, um, a lot of excitement, I think, actually, among the community that we were actually going to um, see the Supreme Court in the US opine and and perhaps drive some change in relation to Section 230 after a couple of decades of commentary and expectation of reform. But it didn't happen. So were you surprised by the lack of commentary on Section 230 in those two cases? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there was there was a lot of excitement. I think there was also, also a lot of nervousness um, about what the court might do. Yeah, trepidation. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, this is, uh, you know, it's a it's a sort of highly technical area. Um, you know, the question in the Gonzalez v. Google case was, you know, does a platform lose the uh, immunity that Section 230 provides when it amplifies content, right? So when YouTube says uh, for you or whatever next video um, and, and it recommends a piece of terrorist content, for example, um, now ordinarily you, you can't sue YouTube just because it has terrorist content on its website. That's what we talked about. That's the core of Section 230. But the argument was, well, think it's different. It should lose that immunity once it starts amplifying that content. And that's actually like a surprisingly technical question about like, well, what is amplification? How do these recommendation algorithms work? What, you know, who knows what and what kind of level of knowledge is there involved in, in that kind of, uh, in that kind of process. And, you know, uh, Justice Kagan in, in oral argument sort of got a lot, you know, had this laugh line where she said, we're not like the nine greatest experts on the internet, right? And she was sort of saying, acknowledging mm. that for the court to weigh in here in this like really technical area and provide a justiciable line of what, you know, what counts as amplification, but wouldn't catch, for example, search engines where when you're searching for terrorist content or you want to search about ISIS and it provides you answers um, that you do, you know, that's this kind of thing that pretty much everyone agreed. We want to protect those kinds of answers. Like that's the kind of thing that the internet, um, the, the recommendation algorithms can be really good for. Drawing those distinctions is really, really hard. And I think everyone was really nervous that the, the court was going to make a big hash of it. Um, and I think Ultimately, what happened was the court itself um, became nervous that it was going to make a big hash of it. Or sort of during the oral arguments, when it was sort of interacting with the lawyers from both sides about trying to like understand uh, how these systems worked, and you could really hear the justices like troubled, troubled by the idea that these platforms 
didn't have uh, any any responsibility and, and and could be completely irresponsible, but also I think quite scared about how to understand where to draw the line. Um, and so I think, you know, especially after oral argument, listening to them sort of feel, I think, nervous um, about their capacity um, to, 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 um, to make a good ruling. Uh, it didn't entirely surprise me uh, that they ultimately punted. So I, I have sympathy for the justices in that instance, but it's also kind of terrifying to me that an inability to understand something is driving a, a lack of reform or a lack of change. And it's something that we really focus on, you know, a lot of the work we do at the Tech Policy Design Centre is how do you actually lift the bar in terms of the level of debate, the level of conversation, but also uplift public servants' capacities to make policy or regulators' ability to engage. And, you know, I think for me, that particular quote that you're talking about, we're not, we're not the nine experts on the internet, is a, a perfect example of why we need to to be engaging more actively on these issues. I mean, I completely agree with that, but I think that, you know, there's also this question of institutional competence and like, are judges the right people to be doing this? Or maybe are like lawmakers, mm. so whether it's parliament or Congress, you know, maybe, you know, when, when they can sit down and have hearings with tech executives or get expert reports and sort of have these conversations and craft, you know, really nuanced pieces of legislations that have like lots of definition sections and all of these kinds of things. That to me feels like when you're dealing with highly technical, highly detailed problems, that feels like a more sort of uh, an approach that's likely to get better outcomes than these judges, many of whom, like, you know, I, I, I can't remember the average age, but it's it's it's, it's right up there, um, you know, weighing in once every, you know, 20 plus years on the particular interpretation of a particular piece of uh, regulation. Mm. That doesn't necessarily feel like the best way to be crafting regulation in a space that's so fast moving, that's so technical. Um, that, that has all these other things. So, I mean, I totally agree with you um, that we can't sort of just plead ignorance because this technology exists and it needs to be regulated. Like that doesn't mean like we shouldn't just sort of mm. go, oh, mm. it's all too scary. But I do think there is maybe justified humility uh, from wondering, you know, who are the right people to be making these kinds of rules and do they have the right resources um, and information at hand in order to, to make the correct decisions? You're listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast from the Australian National University's Tech Policy Design Centre. If you like what you're hearing, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating or even better, leave us a short review on your podcast platform of choice. Now, enough interruptions from me. Let's dive back into this episode. In the US, there's this new piece of legislation, no Section 230 immunity for the AI Act, saying that we shouldn't have Section 230 applying when it comes to speech regulation for generative AI. So when we're looking at content regulation and generative AI, what what are the things that are top of mind for you? It's a, it's a funny piece of legislation, really, in terms of... Um I don't think many people, it's sort of just clarifying, I think, what many people understand, which is that probably Section 230 doesn't apply to, to generative AI uh, anyway. So it's um, it's like, okay, great. Th- thanks for thanks for, for clarifying. But um, I think, you know, uh, one of the things that has been uh, interesting or good to see, I think, is that at least uh, Congress has uh, gotten better, has, has, has learned things um, over the past half decade. Um, when I first started, uh, first started my dissertation and was, and was working on this, you know, this was before, um, it was sort of in the first year or so that we had the first hearings with tech executives, you know, 
the first time that Mark Zuckerberg was called to the hill and 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 uh, made to answer for 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 everything he'd done. And back then it was like a big deal, you know. This was a it was a, a Super Bowl news event that that these these guys were being made to, and they were generally guys being made to to show up and explain themselves. Um, and then sort of over the next few years, it sort of became a bit of a yawn event because they were happening all the time. Um, these these hearings with with various tech executives. Um, and I think we did see. Um, I mean, I don't want to overstate it. We did see some improvement for, 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 for like the the level of questioning um, and uh, and and level of knowledge. I think also that's on on the one side. On the other side, we also saw like an increasing partisanship uh, and polarization of a lot of and politicization of a lot of these issues. So maybe some questions got better, but some questions got a lot worse as well because there was a lot more grandstanding and a lot more sort of like um, if in 2016 there was some maybe partially bipartisan agreement about like Russian interference in the US election and Facebook needing to, to fix that problem. I think we're in a world now where there's like barely any bipartisan agreement about any of these issues. Uh, and I think that that really sort of hampers, um, ha- hampers the productivity uh, of, of these hearings. Do you think the tone of the companies has changed in relation to these hearings? Because, I mean, there's been the increase of hearings in the US, but also, you know, a proliferation of these types of hearings in parliaments all around the world. Um, And I think, you know, it is interesting which, you know, in Australia at the moment we have um, foreign interference um, inquiry being led by uh, Senator Bragg and, you know, who who is appearing at that, who's responding to requests to appear is, you know, a controversial topic. Um, So the, the way that companies are engaging, have you noticed a shift in that? Well, I mean, I'd be curious for your answer uh, for for um, on the Australian front. Um, sadly, you know, when I first started this, uh, like I was saying, um, you know, there was there was not a lot of lot of action, I guess, not a lot of regulation, and I tried to keep track of all of the regulatory processes that were happening ar- around the world. And these days, every regulator's doing it, and I basically can't keep track anymore of like what's happening in all the different jurisdictions. And so, sadly, I'm not as uh, n- not as informed and can't keep as up to date on sort of the Australian issues as I once did or, or would have liked to. Um, so I'd be you know, curious to hear how, how you think it's changing in Australia. Um, in, in, in the States, you know, I think, um, uh, I think that, uh, you know, generally that the companies have, um, have, have, have shown up, I think that, um, and, and, uh, tried to be helpful. I think that, um, you know, people was, were all very impressed with how, um, Sam Altman of OpenAI was much more proactive in getting out ahead mm. of uh, the congressional hearings um, when sort of congressional interest in OpenAI and generative AI started. He was really proactive about engaging with Congress. I think having watched Mark Zuckerberg and, and the others sort of be caught on the back foot about being like mm. hauled towards to, to Congress and not really sort of expecting it and, and, and being on the defensive, I think he understood that Congress is in the game now They of like being interested in technology and wanting to understand how this works. And so he wasn't ever going to avoid uh, scrutiny. And so it was much more uh, proactive in framing that conversation and trying to make that conversation happen on his own terms, uh, which mm-hmm. I think has, has uh, really expanded um, over, the, over the last few years. Yeah. I mean, I think the big difference in Australia is, is the level of representation of who attends the hearings, right? right. So normally uh, if there is a representative, it'll be a regional representative. Yeah. You don't get Sam Altman. Yeah. So he's not turning up. To- right. Gotcha. <laughs> I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Senator Bragg, but I don't think he is. And I guess that leads to a question. There's, there's been increasing commentary about 
the concept of trust and safety or, or companies um, devaluing trust and safety. There's a lot of pressure on the industry at the moment, redundancies and things going on across the industry and a, a perception that maybe trust and safety is being devalued um, is, is a conversation that I'm increasingly hearing. Do you agree with that? Is that your perception um, sitting where you are at Stanford? Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. I think in some ways there is much more understanding now than there was half a decade ago that trust and safety is something that these companies need to be thinking about from the get-go. I think that, you know, the the famous Mm. saying was, you know, Facebook was move fast and break things. And that was about Facebook, but it was sort of seen as being generally how the industry thought about these things is they didn't think about trust and safety. They didn't think about content moderation rules when they first started uh, operating. And then they found themselves with all these problems and they slowly started to build these massive rule sets and bureaucracies and sort of think about it. And I think there is sort of a more, more, more understanding, not everywhere, but like that this is just for purely business reasons, something that these companies need to, to think about. And if you look at like OpenAI, for example, with the generative AI, they had content moderation and rules and, and, and safeguards in place when they launched. Like there were certain things that you could not ask uh, OpenAI, OpenAI to do and get answers, like whether it's, you know, how to make a bomb or, or whatever, you know, and make it, you know, uh, repeat hateful, certain hateful things or uh, those kinds of things. OpenAI, OpenAI recognized that as soon as you release a technology, um, there are going to be people that try and abuse that technology. And they had, um, rules in place uh, to, to try and stop that. Now, of course, every rule, you know, can be gamed and people found ways to, to get around it. And, and, and <laughs> like, tell my my grandma, like, pretend you're a grandma telling a child a, a bedtime story about how to make a bomb. And suddenly the open AI is like, <laughs> chat GPT is, is telling you how to, how to make a bomb or whatever it happens to be. Um, but so I think that there there is that sort of like, proactive idea just because they know that it's a business risk. It's a reputational risk. It's a regulatory risk um, to not think about these things in advance. Whereas, you know, uh, um, Microsoft released the chatbot Tay and um, without a lot of these safeguards and, and you know, with, within a day or, or something, um, uh, people had got it uh, repeating, um, I think it was white supremacist uh, ideology. So I think, um, so I think from, from, from that perspective, there's more proactive recognition that this is something that companies have to think about. But, you know, on the one side, that's that's good that they recognize that it's a business risk. On the other side, if you only think about it as like a business risk and a reputational risk rather than like some sort of like moral responsibility or, you know, whatever it, it, uh, other reason for doing it. Shaping society. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, doing good in the world. Um, yeah. Uh, a lot of it's seen as a cost center, right? Like it is something that you have to invest in uh, in order to reduce the risks of your product. And in a time where there's industry downturn and a lot of these companies are laying off lots and lots of staff, thousands and thousands of staff, you know, mm. cost centers are where uh, some of this this comes from, of course, inevitably. Um, and so we see, uh, uh, you know, less investment um, in 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 that kind of. Uh, uh, it, 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 in those um, in those parts of the platform, I think there's also been over the past few years, and we were talking about the politicization before, a sort of a bit of a backlash against um, content moderation, against um, mm. uh, uh, you know the overly censorious uh, leftist um, you know liberal elites from Silicon Valley taking down anything that they don't like um, is the narrative uh, from 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 particularly the Republicans in the United States, which has led uh, some platforms and, you know, Twitter being the case in point here uh, to, to step back from doing content moderation 
maybe partly for, for cost savings reasons, but also ostensibly, notionally, uh, for ideological or sort of those political reasons as well. We talked a little bit about the difference in terms of the level of representation at a, at a US Senate hearing versus an Australian hearing. What role do you think there is for jurisdictions like Australia on content regulation or content moderation issues in this global environment, particularly focusing on Australia, but also conscious that, you know, jurisdictions like India or Brazil you know, have really strong thoughts on this and, and how how we meld the international nature of these types of regulations with the fact that, you know, most of these platforms sit within one or two major jurisdictions. US, China is what I'm meaning there. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is obviously a global problem and uh, regulators everywhere are, are having um influence in in positive and and negative ways. And, you know, I think that the influence that Australia can have is going to be very different uh, from the influence that India can have and, and, uh, you know, and Germany and the EU, like all of these uh, different regulations have very different kinds of uh, philosophies, approaches, um, safeguards, democratic norms, uh, or, or, um, and and so, uh, and, you know, economic power, geopolitical power, all of those sorts of things, I think really impact um, the different approaches and and the different impact that these jurisdictions can have. You know, one of the big differences, the biggest difference, I guess, between like uh, Australia and America, I guess I'd say there's two. Um, The first is, you know, you can't have this conversation um, in America without uh, the First Amendment getting mentioned. Um, and uh, like I think that that is just, it, it looms large in all of these debates, uh, both culturally and uh, legally and politically and in all sorts of ways, the First Amendment gets invoked uh, correctly, incorrectly, um, in the name of free speech and in, 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 in uh, on all sides, everyone is claiming the First Amendment mantle um, because it does really important uh, political and cultural work, I think. And, uh, and sort of, I think the... Um, the uh, the sort of the free speech um, culture here is is something that sort of looms much larger than it than it um, than it does in Australian debates, and I think that that uh, sort of um, affects the window of possibility. I mean, and also legally, right? Like the also legally, the options that are available to regulators are very different in the two in the two countries in terms of what um, what would be constitutional um, and uh, in in America. Um, uh, you know, Australia has more uh, uh, latitude in that regard, and also can pass legislation. Um, you know, we 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 we've <laughs> talked about Section two hundred and thirty, and we've talked about all of these legislative hearings, and we've talked about all of the you know all of these years of debates and things like that. And there are no there there are yeah. dozens of bills, Section two hundred and thirty bills. There is n- there nothing gets passed um, because of this polarization, because of this like congressional uh, uh, dysfunction um, that sees that that there's basically uh, you know very little hope of ev- anything ever getting passed, let alone anything um, good or 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 productive. Whereas in Australia, stuff gets passed yeah. for better or for worse. Uh, legislation can get moved through very quickly. Um, you know, the, the, in, in the aftermath of the Christchurch massacre, I think it was like something like 48 hours, uh, that there yeah, was three or, days, you know, yep. three days yep. that a piece of legislation yep. was passed. I think that's terrible. That's not a, that's not a great way to make, make, you know, uh, careful tech policy, but the fact that, policy can be made uh, does mean that there is an opportunity to make good policy and, and to, to provide an example. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, we, we see that, uh, that, you know, global regulators and other jurisdictions notice. I mean, we've seen um, with the uh, debates unfolding in Canada around um, link taxes and, and uh, sort of the 
you know, requiring platforms to pay uh, journalists and, and mm. media outlets for for content on their services. Australia's example gets invoked all the time, and the the, the Australian example of the media bargaining code uh, comes up all the time. So, for for better or for worse, um, what Australia does, I mean, it's it's not going to have the same. Uh, level level of impact, obviously, uh, as some of the other bigger jurisdictions, um, but but it does provide an example. Mm. Minister O'Neill, Minister for Home Affairs and and Cybersecurity, who's currently leading a process for um, a new cybersecurity strategy in Australia. And when she spoke in an event that we held, Tech Policy Futures at, at Parliament, she acknowledged that very fact that you know the Australian Parliament is a functional parliament, that it does pass legislation, right. <laughs> and that we have the impetus and and the demand from the public to be to be driving change in this space. And I think you know it's often something that we perhaps lose sight of um, in the nitty gritty of all the things that are going on. How valuable our actual democracy uh, and the functioning of our democratic systems are, notwithstanding the fact that they themselves also need to have some reform <laughs> as well. But but right. they're precious, right. which is uh, which is really important. Absolutely, that and and healthcare. Those are the two things like I <laughs> that I that I miss about living in Australia, like functioning democracy and and uh, good healthcare. System. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just two little things. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Evelyn, I'd love to get your recommendations for um, you know books or resources, um, places you go to to keep up to date, or that you've found really valuable uh, throughout your career. And, I want to give a shout out also to your your podcast um, moderated content, which is um, a weekly podcast and a lot of fun. So highly highly recommend it to to folks listening to this one. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking about this, and and you know what what advice or recommendations would I give for people to to keep up in in um, interested in tech policy issues? And you know I find myself, especially with the demise of Twitter um, as a you know place where a lot of content was like uh, you know which was where I would go to get a lot of uh, to keep up to date and get a lot of news. Um, yeah. But there just aren't as many people on Twitter uh, anymore, and you know the 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 quality has um, has has really degraded in, in my opinion, or at least the stuff that I'm trying to find. Um, so the, I'm going to just give a general plug to newsletters. I think newsletters are fantastic and a really mm. great way to, to stay up to date. So Casey Newton's platformer um, is is fantastic. Yeah. And uh, I get a lot of uh, information and news out there out of that. But, you know, like the Washington Post um, has has a great technology newsletter. Uh, Rest of World is a, is a, a technology, um, an outlet, a media outlet that covers technology uh, in what it calls the rest of the world, so not America. And, and it has some really fantastic stories about stuff that's happening uh, all around the world um, that I find really, really valuable. Yeah. So those are the kinds of things that I um, that I find really valuable. I think newsletters, are that, that's how I start my day every day is I, I go to my inbox and I uh, have all my overnight newsletters that, that give me the, the latest uh, in the morning. I love it. Bring back the newsletter. Right. That's the uh, that's the call uh, for the podcast. Um, thank you so much, Evelyn, uh, for taking the time uh, to chat with us. Really big fan of your work. Um, would love to to do more with you um, in the in the coming um, months and years. And um, best of luck with all of your work and and the remainder of your spring break. I right. believe are you no, on spring summer, break? Summer holidays are over it's here. Okay, at the summer holidays. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to say spring break. Yeah. Fine. Okay. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you. No, it's a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was recorded on Ngunnawal lands with sound engineering by ANU Studio. Amy Denmead provided invaluable research support. 
Post-production is by Martin Franklin from East Coast Studio. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved. Thank you.